Open up your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Hopefully you got your study sheets and a pen. The title of tonight's message is A Tale of Two Kings. Not too original given last week's message on A Tale of Two Priests. 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Follow along with me in your introduction because we got to roll. That means follow along with your eyes. Andy, quit distracting the youth. Did you say chapter 18? See? Yes. <laughs> All right. Follow along with me on your introduction. The Bible calls all of us who are saved New Testament kings and priests. This is a little bit of a recap from last week, but uh, for... You guys good? Can we get started with the lesson? Beautiful. All right, on Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I hope you never ever get tired of reading a verse like that. I hope you're in here and that verse has very great meaning to you in your life. Unfortunately for me, there are days that will go by that I will get so caught up and so distracted with tasks and things that I have to do, whether it be job related or whether it be family related. And for you guys, I'm sure sometimes it's school related especially since we're back into the throes of another fun and exciting semester. Yee-hee. 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 <laughs> That's, never mind, I'm not going to go there. But I hope you never, ever get tired of the fact that you are a saved, born-again, blood-washed saint of God. Maybe you're in here and you're not. And you have a question as to how does that happen? Well, for starters, it has absolutely nothing to do with anything that you can possibly do to earn your salvation. There are a lot of churches that go around and talk about the blood of Jesus. A lot of churches that go around teaching and preaching about the blood of Jesus. But the application to receive that blood upon yourself takes on whole new meaning depending on where you might go to church. There are some who will teach that you receive and have the blood applied to you as you take communion and drink of the cup that has been blessed with some kind of hocus pocus that is supposed to help wash the sins away and that blood atones for your sins. But when you dig deeper into that kind of uh, doctrine and teaching, it only cleanses you of your sins since the last time you took communion. So therefore, it's not permanent. And you have to keep doing it again and again and again. And you know what's funny is you keep reading your Bible, especially in the New Testament, that is just a whole bunch of hogwash. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you need to continue to take and drink juice or wine out of a cup in order to have your sins cleansed from you. No. According to this verse here and several others like it, salvation has nothing to do with what you do. It's what He already did. He loved you first and foremost. And the Bible says that while you were yet his enemy, while you were yet a sinner, because of his holy perfection and his holy righteous standard of the word of God, you and I are all criminals who have violated the laws of this book. 
And we deserve to be treated as a criminal. Really, when you evaluate yourself, you evaluate your sinfulness in light of the holy, righteous standard of a holy and righteous book, you and I deserve to be punished. But God, who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he loved us, the Bible says, he washed you from your sins in your own blood. You don't have to pay the price for your sins now anymore. You don't have to try to do something in order to have him be appeased with you. He did it all for you. You know how we then apply that and be washed in the blood ourselves? According to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's like a gift. It's a simple gift. He did that. You didn't ask for it. It wasn't on your Christmas list. And he just did it for you. And he gave you himself. All you have to do is receive a gift. And we do that in this day and age by faith. It's a simple prayer of faith to call upon him. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when that happens, John continues in verse 6, he makes us kings and priests unto God and his Father to be to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And Revelation 5 says, and they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain. And again, we talked last week in the introduction about what all that means. If you're confused, check last week's message out. Ask a friend how you could do that. Or go to the Spotify in the back of the little card you got. Yee-hee. And hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Again, it's about the blood. Not your filthy rags of works. It's his blood. His blood cleanses us from sin. His blood saves us. And as a result, in verse 10, when you receive that by faith, he makes you kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Back to your outline. As we saw with that, the Old Testament becomes a picture book now to illustrate what types of Christians we ought to be. You can check those verses out later, but the Old Testament, it was written for our example, it says in 1 Corinthians. And Romans 15, 4 says that whatever was written beforehand it was written for our learning. And you have an Old Testament that is just chock full of kings and chock full of priests. And you can look at certain ones, and we did last week by seeing a couple examples of two different types of priests. You see how they lived. You see what they did. And then all of a sudden the Bible becomes alive and it tells you who has received the blood of Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. The Bible tells you now how you can live for him. And we decided on this as a little pre-winter camp series to help prepare our hearts to evaluate and see what kind of a king and a priest have I been. Last week, we looked at two groups of priests that challenged us to evaluate our closeness with God. Closeness is your blank, by the way. Tonight, we will look at two kings as we ask God to reveal to us what he wants us to see going in a winter camp. So real quick, I'm not going to spend too, too long on this. I, I, I did it last week, so you guys kind of got the idea of, okay, I get it. We're, we're called kings and priests, and I get there's Old Testament examples for it, but how does that apply to us on a more broader spectrum? And same thing with this one. Why does the Bible consider us to be New Testament kings? Well, the first bullet point on there is because we as children of God are also joint heirs with Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the King of kings, it says. And one day he is going to come back to righteously judge this place and rule and reign for all of eternity. Well, here in Romans chapter 8, 17, it says, talking about you and I, who have been washed by the blood, who have called upon him by faith, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In other words, when he comes back and he's ruling and reigning for a thousand years and into the eternity future, you know who's going to be right alongside ruling with him as a king? You and me. You and me. And even though because we're saved, we're considered a king, the level with which you and I rule into eternity is conditional based upon how this verse ends. If so, be that we, what? Suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. You go back to Romans chapter 8, and then you look at the context of the chapter right before Romans 8, and you know what he talks about? It's not so much the suffering that you guys may have if uh, you take your Bible to school with you and maybe you get made fun of a little bit, or if you start sharing the gospel with somebody at the lunch table, and others who are listening nearby start snickering at you because you're the Jesus freak weirdo. Yes, he is talking about that, but really the suffering that he talks about, contextually speaking, in Romans chapter 7, it's the battle that you and I face every single day living in this skin called our flesh. It is the battle we experience where, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 7, each of us have things in our heart because we're saved now. We've been washed in the blood of Christ and we're Christians. We want to do better for the Lord and we want to do that which is right. But, Paul says, every time we have that feeling and that desire, we want to do something right. On the other hand, he, sees, he says it's almost like a law that he finds that there's this battle occurring within our flesh that wants to go back to living the way that we used to live before we knew Christ to just have fun, to not care at all for the things of Christ in the Bible. And he says it's a battle, and Paul goes back and forth. That which I want to do, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the conclusion of it, he just says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You experience that on a daily basis, weekly basis? Have you been feeling the pressure of that? Maybe it's a, a sin that you thought was dead and buried and has come back up in your life. Maybe it's just your thoughts, trying to keep your thoughts just completely focused on the Lord and not distracted by all the things going on around you. Are you in that fight too? Are you suffering with Him? Or when that fight comes up, when that, that, that urge and that battle comes up, do you just give in? Because that might in turn limit your ability to rule in the next kingdom. Doesn't mean you're not saved. It's not at all what it happens. It's just, you know, the Bible says in Psalm 84 that, uh, you know, better is one day in your courts. There's a song about that. But then David goes on, or I think it's Asaph, goes on to say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. There might be people that need to just open the doors in the millennial kingdom for others, and that might just be your role. But we are New Testament priests, 
and that shows it because we are joint heirs with Christ. Next, the quality of our service unto him now will determine the level of our ruling and reigning with him in the future. I kind of already touched base on that, but just for another verse to kind of show it to you, Jesus is talking about a parable and he's talking about these people that he gave certain gifts to and he gave them a commission that they needed to fulfill. And based upon their service, one was faithful to reproduce the service, to replicate it, to have fruit that remained. And God said to him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Those are words that each and every single one of us that are Christians ought to strive to hear every single day. Ought to make sure we're living up to that every single day so that when we stand before God, he can say that without shame. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee what? Ruler over many things. What What does a king do? He rules. Third point, throughout our lives, we will have countless opportunities of leadership if we continue to grow with him. Yeah, all these verses so far are talking about future, future tense, when we're in heaven, when we're ruling and reigning throughout eternity. How does this apply right now to where we're at? It's leadership. And though you guys may not be leaders of, let's say, you know, overseeing a ministry at all, you guys can definitely be leaders in your own right. You can take the charge if you have a job and be a leader there, be someone who is worth following there. You'll be a leader on any sports team or any extracurricular activity that you are involved in. But not only that, as I have a couple other examples on here, I mean, you have, you could be a discipler. You can sit down and teach somebody else the Bible and instruct them and train them up, not just for them to know the Bible, but for them to be taught how to teach somebody else. You can be in charge of that. You can lead them in that. And eventually, maybe you'll become a church leader. And eventually, hopefully, if the Lord tarries, you'll become heads of home and parents. And you'll be able to lead in that front. But even within here, there's such a thing as student leadership. In every single youth ministry, at least in solid throughout the time, there's always been a level of student leadership. That, yeah, you have us in Lafferty's and Spates here that are leading this ministry, but amongst the youth, amongst the student body, you guys can all step up and lead in some area or some degree. Maybe God has gifted you with a certain spiritual gift that then you can take and practically apply it within our midst here. And you can be the forefront and the ruler and leader, king, if you will, of that area within the youth ministry and help us out. So tonight we're going to look at two different kings in Israel's history, and maybe we'll glean some tenets of leadership that should really help us. So the first one I have on your list is Jehoshaphat. Anybody know anything about Jehoshaphat at all? Anybody read 2 Chronicles recently? He also shows up in 1 Kings. Good. Then this might be brand new to you. 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Look with me in verse 3. And Ahab, king of Israel. Real quick, stop. Anybody know anything about Ahab? One of the worst kings in Israel's history. Married a woman named who? Jezebel. Jezebel led the nation of Israel to worship false gods, false idols. Ahab, king of Israel, said unto Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Wilt thou go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? 
because Ahab wanted to start a war, wanted to fight with somebody. And Jehoshaphat simply just very humbly said, I am as thou art, and my people as thy people, and we will be with thee in the war. And you go on and you read the rest of chapter 18 and chapter 19, and what you'll find about Jehoshaphat is that he was a follower first. Now, I'm going to ask you to, to separate in your mind the, aspect, the, the doctrinal aspect, so to speak, of Ahab is not the type of guy you want to follow. Okay? He is the worst kind of a king, and really, this is a, you could teach a message of yourself of choose your friends wisely. Make sure that you're like-minded with your friends wherever you go to fight and be in battle with. But I'm going to ask you to, to just kind of separate that doctrinal standpoint from your minds for a second and focus on a little devotional truth here. Even though Ahab was a wicked king, Jehoshaphat said, hey, you know what? We're Judah and you're Israel and right now we're in this crazy time where our two kingdoms should be united and we're separated right now. You guys are in the north, I'm in the south, but you know what? We're Israelites. We're Jews. We serve the same God, even though you guys are completely corrupted and serving other gods along with God. But you know what? Let's unify. Let's go. Let's serve. And you know what you learn from this? Point number one, a leader must be a follower before he can lead. Uh, again, that's not Ahab's not a guy you want to follow. But I'm reminded of what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.17. He said, fear God, honor the king. You know who was king during Israel? Well, not in Israel, but Rome was overseeing Israel. Rome was the dominant power and empire at that time. You know who was king when Peter wrote those words, honor the king, to a whole bunch of suffering Christians? Guy by the name of Nero. Have I told you about Nero recently? If not, allow me to refresh your memory. Nero is the type of guy who loved to show off his beautiful gardens that he had. So much so that he, they just had people lined up down the road for miles. And so, of course, five o'clock would come and, oh, there's still so many people that I want to have out. It's dark, though. It's nighttime. I know. I'll get some torches and light it up so that you guys can walk through and see my beautiful gardens. Only this sick puppy decides that the torches he wants to use are Christians, people who believe the exact same things you and I believe. So what he would do is take a ginormous pole, impale them right through the groin, dump pitch all over them, and then light them on fire if they still had any breath in their bodies at the time. That was the king. Peter said to him, honor the king. You think things are bad in the country now or in the world now? You think you might have it rough with whatever authority figure might be in your life? You're like, man, I can't stand following that person. If you were to read chapter 19, one of the things you'll find is that even though Ahab wasn't really a king worth following, because Jehoshaphat did, God spared his life because he humbled himself. Because he chose, I believe, to want to unify Israel back together so that there'd be peace, so that they could worship God together, even though Ahab was wicked. Before anyone becomes a leader, before anybody can lead somebody else, you have to first learn how to be a follower.
bar none. Anybody know what 1 Corinthians 11, 1 says? Paul says, be ye followers of me as I follow the Lord. Know who to follow, follow them, but you better make sure they're following the Lord first and foremost. And anybody who follows after you, like a disciple or a friend that maybe you've invited to church, you better make sure you're following the Lord and staying humble yourself. Point number two, look with me in chapter 19. Chapter 19. Actually, excuse me, chapter 18 is where Ahab ends up dying and Jehoshaphat spared. Now chapter 19, Jehoshaphat's the guy. He's the guy that's leading things. Look at verse 8. Moreover in Jerusalem did Jehoshaphat set of the Levites and of the priests and of the chief of the fathers of Israel for the judgment of the Lord and for the controversies when they returned to Jerusalem. And he charged them, the priests, the chiefs of the fathers of Israel, he charged them saying, Thus shall ye do in the fear of the who? Lord. You shall do it in the fear of the Lord, but how? What's the next word? Faithfully and with a perfect heart. Man, I love it. Jehoshaphat realizes, guys, we are completely off kilter right now. We have to turn course and we need to change the way that things are going. And camps are a really good time for that to happen in your life. For you to stop and maybe pivot to stop the course of the ship and evaluate. Do I want to keep heading towards that iceberg? Or do I want to maybe stop and go the other way? Because some of you right now, I wouldn't be doubting you're heading straight for an iceberg. Maybe, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. How'd that work out for the Titanic? He doesn't read much folks, so he's, it's okay. Anywho, Jehoshaphat decides it's time to clean house. It's time to put things in order. So all of chapter 19, he's doing that. As soon as he gets things in crystal clear order, look at chapter 20, verse 1. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to what? Second thing you need to know as a leader, a leader must know that opposition is going to come whenever you make advances in your walk. Are you feeling it? If not, maybe it's because you're already sunk at the bottom of the ocean. If not, maybe it's because you have so newly been washed in the blood of Christ and you're walking with the Lord for the first time that God has this protective covering over you. And he's like, hey, I'm going to watch over you and, and I'm not going to give you more than what you can handle right now. Your day will come, but just watch. Others in here, maybe you have been making those strides and those advances in your walk and you're like, no, I'm not going back to that sin. No, I'm not going to hang out with those friends because they always get me to go back into my sinful lifestyle. Even if it's just my thoughts, I'm not going to hang out with them because I'm going to get in trouble if I keep hanging out with them. Just know that when you start making decisions like that in your walk, opposition is going to come. 
whatever God speaks to you about this weekend and whatever decisions you choose to make as a result of what God is speaking to you about, just know opposition is going to come. It happened in Jehoshaphat. It happened again and again and again all throughout this book. Know it's going to happen. I have Acts on there, and no, it's not a, a, a an error. I don't have a verse reference because the entire book of Acts is all about God moving to establish his plan and Satan moving to counter, counterfeit, and confound God's plan. The entire book is like that. And it's the book that tells you about early church history. And it's used, because God is a God of patterns, it's used as a pattern for us of what the last 2,000 years have been like. Now, whenever God is moving in our youth ministry, whenever God is moving in this church, opposition is always going to come. Are you prepared for battle? Jehoshaphat was. Look at verse 3. Here's how he prepped himself. Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. They're not eating. They have this intention to only seek the Lord. Verse 4, And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem and the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Point number three. What do we gather from these verses? A leader is a prayer warrior who reminds people who God is. That's what he's doing. Art thou not God in heaven and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? He's reminding his people, hey, remember who God is. I get it. It's a prayer, but it's a prayer in front of the entire congregation. He's preaching a message, reminding them who is God. So let me ask you, Solid, who is God for you? Do you believe that whatever it is you're going through, that in his hand, is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Do you believe that with that person that you know you should share the gospel with? but you're just too scared to? Is there not power and might in his hand? And does he not want to give you that power? Uh, yes, he does, because Matthew twenty eighteen says, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That's why the very next verse says, go ye therefore. This is the therefore. Go ye therefore into all the earth. Preaching the gospel, discipling people. Because all power is given unto him. Whom shall we fear? Whom shall we fear? Look at verse 7. Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine... We stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. Point number four, a leader reminds his people 
not only of who God is, but what God has done. So let me ask you, Solid, what has God done in your life? What has he done recently in your life? Are you more in love with God now than you were six months ago at summer camp? If not, something is wrong, something is off. What's God done in your life? I hope you guys keep journals, honestly. I hope that whenever a blessing or an answer to prayer or an opportunity happens, you're writing it down, you're dating it, and you're being as specific as possible so that when times like this come and you're in the midst of a battle, you can go back and read all the things that God has done so that you can then be reminded of who God is so that you can then know God's going to see me through this also. I hope you're doing that. Verse 10, And now behold, keep in mind this is still a prayer, Behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade, when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us. They come to get us now, to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O oh, our God! Do you pray like this, by the way? Side note. Wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. Point number five. A leader reminds his people of who they are. He reminds them of who they are. A people... Much loved by God. Greatly loved by God. Loved you to bring you out of the sinful state you were in. Just as God brought these people out of Egypt and delivered them from such a cruel taskmaster and gave them a purpose and a mission. Gave them a purpose and a mission. That's you. So if you're in here and you're like, ha, ah, I've not been, not been suffering with him. I've kind of just given in the fight. I've kind of just thrown in the towel. When the bell rings and I'm coming out of the corner, I just one swing, one fake jab, and I just hit the deck. Out for the 10 count. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs that if that describes you, your strength is small. But it's okay because we want you to grow and be strengthened here. And that's why we do Bible studies like this. Number six, a leader isn't a loner. He that hath friends must show himself friendly. When Joshua prayed this, look at verse 13, and all Judah stood before the Lord the Lord standing because of him standing behind him but not only that look who's standing behind them their little ones their wives and their children you can't go it alone a leader's not a loner so I ask you who's following you who's following you 
maybe you have need to go back to number one and become a follower yourself and be discipled. Maybe, <coughs> maybe you need to do what Hebrews talks about, that y- you were trained, you were taught, you were discipled, but you have need that someone disciples you again because you've lost your way, gotten shipwrecked by the iceberg. Maybe, maybe that's you. Next. Oh, forgot about this passage. Where am I at? <coughs> Sorry, black lung still. I guess I didn't put that on there. First Samuel 22, 1-2. It's an interesting passage. Look it up later. David escapes and he hides in a cave. And his brothers and his father hear about it. And as a result, they come down And there are droves of people finding David and they're seeking his help for advice and counsel. And that's where his, really his kingship begins. He's hiding in a cave, running from his life from Saul. And then you have the people of Israel seeking him out for counsel, seeking him out for advice. He had people following him before he was even king. Lastly, a leader knows the victory is his when the battle belongs to the Lord. Look at verse 15. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but who? God's. Tells them in verse 16 that go down, here I'm going to instruct you. In verse 17, ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. Sometimes God doesn't want you to do anything other than just be still, know who God is, know what God has done, and know who you are in God. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And you know what happens as a result of this? They go and do that, and God confounds the enemies, and the enemies end up killing each other. They didn't have to swing one sword, throw one spear. No fight was even done. God took care of all the enemies for them. God will fight your battles for you. You don't have to worry about that. Leviticus 26, 8 says that five of you, when when you have this mindset, when you have this mindset as a leader, five of you shall be able to chase a hundred away. And a hundred of you shall be able to chase 10,000 away. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. That's the business that God is involved in. That's the business that God is interested in. Jehoshaphat was a great king in Israel. Look at verse 35. And after this, did Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, join himself... With Ahaziah, king of Israel, who did very what? He didn't learn the mistake from history. And he joined himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. I have 1 Kings 22, 48 there as a cross-reference for you guys. That verse will tell you that the reason they were going down there was to get gold. To find gold. And to get it for themselves. 
And look what happened in verse 37. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodava, and Marisha, sure, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because thou hast joined thyself with Ahaziah, the Lord hath broken thy works. And the what? Ships were broken, that they were not able to go to Tarshish. I transpose two words here on your key point, but your key point, one wrong friendship can leave you shipwrecked. I said in First Kings that they were going down to search for gold, for worldly treasure. Maybe the wrong friendship you might be making in this room is with the world. One wrong friendship, it'll wreck your plans. Did for them. <coughs> Wrecked their plans. He was a great king. Great king. Just like what we looked at last week. The priest class were servants. They were serving God. They were saved. And yet, they weren't near to God. Jehoshaphat was a good king who was making strides in his walk. Knew who God was. Knew what God had done. Knew who he was. Taught the people that. But one wrong friendship... One wrong connection, one wrong joining wrecked everything, quite literally. What a great devotional application. Do you see an iceberg ahead in your life? Not to make light of what Andy says, but make good choices with that sucker. Next, turn over to 2 Kings 22. Back two books. Next, we're going to look at King Josiah. King Josiah very well might just be the best king Israel had during this time of divided kingdom. <clears throat> Look with me in verses 1 to 3. Josiah was eight years old. Let me read that again. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. Now, the way that this is worded, and you find this with a couple other kings in Scripture, is that this could mean that it was his 18th year of life, but typically most people have thought it to mean it's his 18th year of reign. So either way, homeboy's either 18 years old or he's 26 years old, which by Old Testament Israeli standpoint, 26 years old to rule a kingdom is young. Young. Look at how old Moses was when he reigned. Abraham, when he became a father of many nations. In other words, God's not in any rush, and neither should you be. So this guy reigning at that young of an age, it'd be very much like he was 18 years old. Reigning a nation. 
Point one, a leader doesn't let anyone despise his youth. <coughs> are there certain maturity factors? Are there certain, certain things that you just can't do? Absolutely. Some things need to come with experience. And that's why we say get all the experience you can. I, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, no one has been ordained here in this church before the age of 30. You need life experiences. doesn't matter how soon you may want to go through the Bible Institute here in the church. It takes time. It takes experience. But that doesn't mean that you're useless for God. Don't let anybody say that you can't do things for Him. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no man despise your youth. But it says, But be thou an example to the believers. In other words, be someone worth following no matter your age. So who's following you? Look at verse 4. <coughs> Sorry. Josiah says, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought in the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house. In other words... This, I don't know if you've read this before or not, this might seem to you to be like a beginning of a very boring story. There's damages within the house of God. There needs to be repairs. Josiah is telling them, get stepping. Let's get moving. Let's get working. We got to fix some things around here. Not the most exciting thing. I don't see any bloodshed yet. Yeah. But follow, follow along. To repair the breaches, verse 6, unto carpenters and builders and masons to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Howbeit, there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand because they dealt faithfully. In other words, this guy was such an awesome king. He had such a great grip on the kingdom that when he told people, go out, get some supplies, go out to Menards, get a few supplies, let's start fixing stuff around here. He never once asked them for a receipt. That's what verse 7 says. There was no reckoning made with them for the money. Why? Because they dealt faithfully. You imagine living in a world where you just you were a man or a woman of your word, and when someone said, hey, go do this, and someone did it, and you didn't have to ask them, I want to see the receipt. I want to make sure you, didn't, you weren't at the checkout line, you got some Sour Patch Kids on there. Let me see the receipt. There was no need for that. There was none because things were so good in the kingdom right here. Things were just ebb and flowing and just going so smooth. It was awesome. You know what we find here, point two? A leader maintains a proper balance in life. A leader maintains a proper balance in life. Everything's balanced out. Proverbs 11.1 1 says that a false balance, talking about weights or monetary value, it's an abomination. We always use Proverbs 11 to talk about have proper balance in your life with your time, with your activities, and that applies. That's what's going on here. Everybody did that which was right. Everybody was just moving along. Business was just going awesome. And then verse 7. Actually, can I get a reader for verses 7 to 10 while I figure out why the rest of my study sheet got... Never mind, we're good. 
Read from verse 7 10. Let's break it up a little bit. Who wants to read? Got, got scared there for a second. My study sheet just got all wonky on me. Isabella, go ahead. Business as usual, things are going so good in the kingdom. And all of a sudden, the high priest says, Hey, found the book. Did, did that wake anybody else out when you read it? What's the natural question to ask when you read that passage? Where the heck did it go in the first place? Why was it gone and missing to begin with? Hey, guys, look, a book. Oh, no, excuse me, pardon me. Apologies all around. Not just a book. He says, I found the book of the law of the Lord. And he gave it and he read it. And the servants gathered the money and they found the house and they're reading it. And then they're all passing it around and they're all reading the book, the book, which if you want to take notes from this point forward to the rest of the chapter, the word book shows up seven times. For those of you listening on podcast, I just winked very ironically at the audience. Just had to clarify that awkward moment of silence. Continue. For these of you Bible students, seven is a very important number, and it's a book. It's not just a book, it's the book. It was missing, but now it's found. How on earth is it possible that things can be going so well without the book governing and leading things? Is it possible that things can be going well in your life without the book having a very predominant effect in you? You see, things aren't always what they appear. It's funny how this keeps coming up, but sometimes your life can be like a, not an avalanche, iceberg. I don't know why I was thinking avalanche. You guys know what I'm thinking about with iceberg? On the surface, beneath the surface. On the surface, everything can look all good. Uh, it's just a tiny chunk of ice. What's beneath the surface can lead to your death and the death of many others under you. Got to be careful. But you know what we gained from this with Josiah? I mean, look, it was Hilkiah, it was Shapan, it was everybody else, that the guys that were doing the oversight, they're, they're passing the book around. You know what a leader does in point three? A leader surrounds himself with others who seek the book. They found the book and now they're all seeking after it. That's what a leader does. Philippians 2.2 says, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then verse 11. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, 
because they're reading it before the king now, Josiah, that he rent his clothes. What does that mean? Ripped them to shreds, tore them up, tore them off. It, it's, it's out of an, an, an immense angst of just conviction. He just ripped his clothes. He was just so distraught. And the king commanded, verse 12, Hilkiah the priest, and Achim the son of Shapan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shapan the scribe, and Azziah the servant of the king, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. Why? For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers, the kings who came before him, have not hearkened unto the words of this book to what? Do according unto all that which is written concerning us. You know, one of the big things that was written concerning us, the kings, as soon as they got on the throne, they were supposed to write their own copy of the law, to write out their own copy of Scripture. But it's lost, so they couldn't do it. Not only that, as you keep reading, you'll find out that they weren't even keeping the Passover. They had forgotten what God had done for them, which is what God said the point of the Passover was to prevent against. Man. You see, what do we learn in point number four with Josiah? A leader isn't afraid to be vulnerable when the book gets a hold of him. When the book finally gets a hold of your heart and your life, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You can't help but keep it in, even if it makes you look a little weird. Even if, yeah, you start getting a little sobby and weepy. Even if you have to come forward and be honest. Maybe when the, God, when the book finally gets a hold of you, maybe you have to go and you have to actually make things right with things that you did wrong to somebody else before. And man, there's no way to make yourself more vulnerable than doing that. Maybe you have to stand up in front of all your peers and say, I was wrong for doing this. And I let you guys down and I'm sorry. That's a leader. That's a leader. Leader isn't afraid to be vulnerable when the book gets a hold of him. He then devotes himself to the book. Man. You see that in chapter 23, the verse, first three verses there. You can check that out later. Look with me in chapter 23, verse 4. Don't worry, we have a couple more verses and we're wrapping up. Verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for who? Yeah, the false god. The worship of Satan, which was going on there. And for the grove and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. You see, the worship of false gods had permeated and gotten its way into the temple of the Lord. But they didn't know that because they didn't have a book. You better get yourself the book and you better get it in your life so you know what God wants and doesn't want in your life. Ugh. I wish we had time to look at verses 5 to 14. But we don't. In other words, you start reading chapter 23 and you'll find Josiah is clean in house. He's getting rid of all the junk that's inside the temple. He's getting rid of all of the false junk that's inside the temple, Christian. Clean in house. 
casting it. He's stopping it. He's so mad. He's so consumed with the book and what the book said. He's so consumed that he takes all the false idols and he starts stomping them into pieces and grinding them to powder and then taking the powder, throwing it into the Kidron Valley. Oh boy, you should look up the Kidron Valley and the Kidron Brook. You know what it's called in the book of Joel? Verses Joel chapter 3, verse 2, 12, and 14. It's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Hmm. That's how our two kings are linked here. It's called the Valley of Decision in Joel 3. And maybe for some of you, tonight is your Valley of Decision where you need to decide, am I going to get rid of the crap that I have allowed back into my life? The crap and the sins that I have allowed to take me away from the book that I've allowed back into my life and have kept me from being the leader that I need to be. Maybe tonight's your value decision. Maybe it's this weekend. What do you need to do? Oh, but don't let the Valley of Kidron stop you there. The Kidron Brook, that goes over even into the Last Supper. Very interesting things going on there as well. Let that cook your noodle. Chew on that this week. Study that out. Let me know what you find. You see, point number five, don't miss this. This was the point that really was the central focus of the entire study sheet for me. A leader is never satisfied with the status quo. Do you guys remember the beginning of chapter 22 before they found the book? Everything was hunky-dory. Everything was smooth coasting. Hey, go get some lumber and materials. I won't even check the receipt to see if you got the Sour Patch Kids or not because I trust you. Things are so going so good. That's the status quo. That's just the steady eddy of life. Hey, I go to church on Sunday. I go to church on Wednesday. Bring my Bible with me. Pray before meals. Pray at nighttime. The epitome of the Christian life for me. You see, a leader's never satisfied with status quo. He is always seeking to make things better. And that's what all of chapter 23 is about. Did you not guess the right blank on that one? Is that what that was? No, I got it. Okay. Because Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. Nope. There we go. Because Jesus paid the ultimate price for us and purchased us with his blood. Therefore, we ought to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are God's. We have a vision as a church every single year, and our church-wide vision this year was to do everything better for the Lord. And this was our headline verse. I just got back today from our pastor's planning meeting for this year, and we have a vision meeting coming up on Sunday the 28th where we're going to reveal the new vision for the year. And it's funny because it has a lot to do has a lot to do with things that we've already been talking about in here. And I have a feeling we're going to be talking about again Sunday and Monday. But how did you do this past year with this vision? Are you content with status quo or have you been seeking to go further in your walk with God? Not just being content with Sundays and Wednesdays. Not just being content with Oh, well, I witnessed to that person. Oh, who's next? Who's next in my land? 
Look at verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not holding such a Passover from the days of the judges. Holy smokes, it's the book of Judges till now. There, you guys didn't keep the Passover. The judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor the kings of Judah, suffer in succotash. Verse 25, and like unto him was there no king before him, Josiah, that turned to the Lord with all his heart. Not some of it. Not, okay, Lord, I'll get up just a little bit early and give you my heart today, but I'm going to sleep in the rest of the week. Fill in the blank with whatever God's speaking to you about on that one. No, he turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Neither after him arose there any like him. There was no king like Josiah in all of Israel before or after. Point number six, a leader charges those following to be keepers of the book, and that's what he charged them with. Hey, the book shows up seven times in chapter 22, and there's seven points of leadership. Laugh. No, just kidding. Number seven. A leader stays faithful until the end, and when his time comes, he goes out swinging. You can read that in verse 29. Josiah goes up, or, yeah, Josiah goes up to battle. Didn't make it. He got got, as they say in the hood. But he still went up to fight. He still went up to battle. You know what? You're not going to win all the fights that you have, but are you still in the fight here? Or are you just showing up on Sundays and Wednesdays? Are you still in the fight? Or are you just showing up, keeping status quo? Look with me in verse 30 and we'll be done. And his servants carried him, Josiah, in a chariot dead from Megiddo. That's also an interesting location. And brought him to Jerusalem and brought and buried him in his own sepulcher. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah. Awesome, it's his boy. And anointed him and made him king in his father's stead. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Awesome, keeping the lineage going, keeping the fight going. Talks about his mother's name and all that. Verse 32, and he did that, which was... Huh. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Man. Josiah is seen as the best king in all of Israel's history. You look at any commentator, they'll tell you that, but I think those guys even missed this key point. A leader can fail to train up his successor. 2 Timothy 2.2 And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. I have more to say on this at a later date. I think we focus more on the words in black than we do the red highlights that I added there. 
I think we focus on everything up to faithful men. Who shall be able to teach others also? Make sure that when you're discipling, your disciple can disciple somebody else. It's not just about getting them through the stinking book. It's not what it's about. Are they capable of making a disciple of their own? That is the key. That is the end goal. Josiah rocked it. But he didn't train his son to lead. He didn't train his son to lead the men like he led them. Some of you in here may be rocking it right now in your personal walk and here in our midst. Who's stepping up after you go? Conclusion. What strides of growth have you made in the last six months? Who's following you? And to tie both of these kings together, something we learn about them both, it's not how you start. It's how you what, Benny? It's how you finish. That goes both ways. You can start rock solid and end up an abysmal failure. You can start as an abysmal failure and end up shining your light in darkness. So which are you? You bow your heads. Father, I pray that you would use these messages, please, to reach out to us and to speak to us, not just tonight, but for the days to come leading into winter camp. What kind of a priest have we been? What kind of a, a king have we been? May we evaluate our closeness with you like the priests. May we evaluate our leadership like the kings. Where are we on this spectrum? What do we need to change? What is it you're speaking to us? God, have your way. And I pray if there's anyone here tonight who, you know, maybe they have further questions about salvation that we talked about at the beginning, about calling upon you by faith and receiving the gift of salvation. May they talk to one of us. May they talk to who brought them. May they talk to someone who even just looks friendly. Talk to someone, please. Lord, we thank you so much for the blood of your dear son and how it washes us because of the great love that you had for us. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.